and welcome to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% for February 20th, 2021. And we were listening to the great late Leonard Cohen and his song about democracy. It all fits. It's a, very, it's a real inspiration and it says a lot about what we're trying to do on this show. This is Jim, sound guy and co-commentator. You're listening to KFGM 105.5 F Low Power FM and Missoula Community Radio streaming on 1055kfgm.org. And now on podcast on anchor.fm or searchable on Spotify and other podcast apps under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. And with me, we are yet again joined by Mark Anderlich. Hey, Jim. Welcome back. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so 
Yeah, so we uh, broadcast from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley. When we remember to say our lines. Um, oh, it's <laughs> uh, been a busy the, week, lots of news. It, it, it has been. Uh, in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish people, we are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes, uh, one of which is located in the ancestral home of the Salish people. That's my home. And and Jim is is currently in northern Alabama. Indeed, the weather-ravaged, frigid northern Alabama, also the home of a surprising number of um, Cherokee people that didn't make the big trek west. And lamentably, I'm in the 5th District, the home of Mo Brooks. So you people in Missoula, please don't weary me with their talk about how our congressman is the worst of the worst <laughs> well um we hope you are holding up and doing your part by staying at home as best you can and by wearing masks when you do go out into public um and by frequent washing of your hands this show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic uh, we hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall, which there's some talk that we may be reopening the studio in a couple months. So, um, yeah, and I'm listening. I think that'd be out of this world. Yeah. For well, our we, faithful listeners, it's wonderful the the, the 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 spirit and the camaraderie that you get when you're all packed into the studio. Right. This, this and, is and a packed, challenge. And packed, and packed is the word for that little studio. Um, so, and we want to give old Mick a shout out as he is at home too, but fully immunized. So good for you, Mick. A lucky man he is. I'm in the state that is number four. 50 of 50 states in per capita immunizations. Woohoo. Yeah, come on back. <laughs> <laughs> For the studio, I shall. Trust me, I can hardly wait. Yeah. Good. So we have a word of the week. And this one, it's this time it's one word, but a lots of syllables. Deregulation. Yeah. This was quite the popular word a few decades back. Uh, so, Mark, why are we looking at this today? Well, uh, the root cause of uh, one of the biggest news stories this week of the Texas electricity disaster is clearly in the deregulation of the electric grid some years back. We will get into the Texas situation in more detail toward the end of the show. Yeah, deregulation along with privatization and austerity are austerity are some of the hallmarks of neoliberalism. Is that in play here? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up privatization and government budget cuts called austerity along with deregulation as some of the principal qualities of neoliberalism. Uh, you might call them the holy trinity of neoliberalism. Mm, if, I like if, that. Yeah, and it's kind of a religion. Um, all <laughs> Sort of a sort of a, a lesser religion, right? Indeed. Um, indeed. Um, all all three of these of uh, the Holy Trinity assume that a free market will solve problems and make life better for everyone. All three words are based on the belief that government can do nothing good in the economy; that only markets freed of government interference, quote unquote, can produce economic good. 
This is the very core of neoliberal capitalism. So what does deregulation mean? Well, this is from our collective wisdom at Wikipedia. Quote, deregulation is the process of removing or reducing state regulations, typically in the economic sphere. It is the repeal of governmental regulation of the economy. It became common in advanced industrial economies in the 1970s and 1980s as a result of new trends in economic thinking <laughs> about the inefficiencies of government regulation and the risk that regulatory agencies would be controlled by the regulated industry to its benefit and thereby hurt consumers and the wider economy, end quote. Oh, wow. <laughs> Did that new economic thinking from the 1970s get that wrong? We have some of the formerly regulated industries calling the shots now. Yeah, and again from Wikipedia, one problem that encouraged deregulation was the way in which the regulated industries often control the government regulatory agencies, using them to serve the industry's interests. Even where regulatory bodies started out functioning independently, a process known as regulatory capture often saw industry interests come to dominate those of the consumer. A similar pattern has been observed with the deregulation process itself, often effectively controlled by the regulated industries through lobbying the legislative process. Such political forces, however, exist in many other forms for other special interest groups. Some of the examples of deregulation in the United States in the setting of industries are banking, telecommunications, airlines, and natural resources, end quote. Mm, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. <laughs> so there is regulatory capture today, such as Wall Street controlling the Security and Exchange Commission, or SEC. But deregulation has not solved that problem as telecommunications and airline giants pretty much have their way today, would you say? Yeah, I would say that's exactly it. So the problem... The problem is a lack of real democratic control of the government and the economy, not government regulation. The history in the U.S. for government regulation of parts of the economy began during the progressive era from the 1890s to 1920. Again, from Wikipedia, Presidents Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and Woodrow Wilson instituted regulation on parts of the American economy most notably in regulating big business and industry. Some of their most prominent reforms are trust busting, which is the destruction and banning of monopolies, the creation of laws protecting the American consumer, the creation of a federal income tax by the 16th amendment, the income tax used a progressive tax structure with especially high taxes on the wealthy, the establishment of the Federal Reserve Bank, and the institution of shorter working hours, higher wages, better living conditions, better rights and privileges to trade unions, protection of rights of strikers, banning of unfair labor practices, and the delivery of more social services to the working classes and social safety nets to many unemployed workers, thus helping to facilitate the creation of a welfare state in the United States and eventually in most developed countries. I, I would use welfare state in parentheses <laughs> or in quotations on that one. This is, I'm quoting right. from Wikipedia here. Um, right. Not in the same the context as the great communicator himself. 
<laughs> yes. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the presidencies of Warren Harding and Calvin Coolidge, spanning the years 1921 through 1929, the federal government generally pursued laissez-faire economic policies or kind of the liberalism of, of economics there. Mm -hmm. After the onset of the Great Depression, President Franklin D. Roosevelt implemented many economic regulations, including the National Industrial Recovery Act, regulation of trucking, airlines, and the communications industry, the institution of the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, and the Glass-Steagall Act, which was passed in 1933. These 1930s regulations stayed largely in place until Richard Nixon's administration. Oh, yes, we know so well. And how has electricity been deregulated in the U.S.? Again, from Wikipedia, uh, deregulation of the electricity sector in the U.S. began in 1992. The Energy Policy Act of 1992 eliminated obstacles for wholesale delivery or wholesale electricity competition. But deregulation has yet to be introduced in all of the states. As of April 2014, 16 U.S. states, which include Montana and Texas uh, and the District of Columbia, have introduced deregulated electricity markets to consumers in some capacity. Montana has since, has since basically repealed it um, because it was a disaster, which I'll get that to a second. <laughs> Adesh, Adesh, additionally, seven states began the process of electricity deregulation in some capacity, but have since suspended their efforts. Yeah, that's, um, that's a telling. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, in about Montana, how did it work out? <laughs> well, yeah, it was a disaster. Um, I, <laughs> think, I think there's no other word for it. Um, according to David Hoffman, Director of Government Affairs for Northwestern Energy, uh, speaking before the Montana uh, be, before a Montana legislative committee in 2019, for example, he said 20 years ago when this state adopted DREG, it really turned into one of the biggest economic and colossal disasters the state has ever seen. With the total failure of Montana Power Company and its parent company, company Touch America, many many people lost their 401ks and their pensions. End quote. Now, uh, Northwestern Energy succeeded uh, the Montana Power Company. And I remember we went from having some of the lowest electric prices <clears throat> before deregulation to some of the highest in the region. Yeah, so deregulation isn't always what it's cracked up to be. <laughs> Not by a long shot, yep. Yeah, I, um, I have noted that uh, when before we uh, took ownership of my parents' house in Missoula, my uh, father and mother would brag about how, oh, it's great here, cheap power from all those federal projects. And now Mrs. Galan routinely reminds me that um, electricity bills are too high. So on that note, lots of news to cover from this week. Uh, what is first in our current news, Mark? Well, <clears throat> as it has been for the last 10, 11 months, uh, despite the slow rollout of some vaccines, unfortunately, the pandemic is still with us in the U.S. 
The overall number of new daily COVID-19 cases is slowly dropping to a rate, well, actually more rapidly recently, to a rate of about 72,000 cases a day in the U.S. For those of you who believe that we need to risk COVID infection to save the economy, the economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus and have enough money to spend into the economy. The World Health Organization, or WHO, advise governments that before reopening, rates of positivity and testing should remain at 5% or lower for at least 14 days, which means that out of all tests conducted, how many came back positive for COVID-19 should be 5% or less for two weeks. Montana the past two weeks has barely not met the goal with a steady positivity rate of just over 4%. Some of the highest positive positivity rates in the nation are in Idaho at 21%, South Dakota at 22%. Wyoming is steady at 3% and North Dakota is at 5% currently and are the only states in our region that has met the WHO standards for reopening the economy. Montana has reported 96 hospitalizations as of Friday, a decrease of four from a week ago. This is an improvement over earlier this winter, but is still continuing to put stress on weary staff and filling up ICU beds and stretching medical resources in the state to its limit. And according to a report on January 15th in STAT, a new more transmissible, transmissible variant of the virus that causes COVID-19 could sweep the United States in coming weeks and become the dominant strain as soon as March, leading to a new surge of cases through the spring, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned Friday. The CDC believes the variant known as B117 is still circulating at low levels in the US. CDC officials acknowledge the variant is more likely, uh, is likely more widespread here than is currently recognized, mm. end quote. So according to the WHO, positivity standards sh- Shouldn't the new governor, Gianforte, consider more statewide closures and limitations? Well, he's doing exactly the opposite. He's lifted the, the mask. <sighs> um, he's lifted the mask, uh, <laughs> which, which is the, the last thing you want to lift, the restrictions. In Missoula, yeah. um, I, I would say that I, I went to the grocery store and the clerks were complaining that people came in saying the governor said we didn't have to wear a mask. And she directed them right out of the store saying, nope, you're not going to shop here unless you wear a mask, as per right. the Missoula County Health Department. Um, so, in, in, you know, she kind of went on about that. She also, interestingly enough, said she lived for 10 years in Japan and um, said that it was like not really a thing when whenever cold and flu season comes on, people just put on their masks as a matter of like social responsibility. So. Yeah. I, um, I concur completely. Um, whenever, whenever you're traveling outside of a rural community, um, first thing you see right. on the train is everybody has a mask on and that's, yeah. that's just the way it's done. It's kind of like, just, you know, clipping your seatbelt. Right. Right. Yeah, it's even probably less limiting, actually, except if you wear glasses. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, I, I had heard rumors before coming down south that um, Governor G and Forty was going to say, "Well, we don't need masks anymore. I'm in charge." 
Yep. And he I did guess that. he wasn't kidding. No, he wasn't. And, um, but, you know, thanks to Congress and their ineffective action, we still don't have enough money in the economy through st- stimulus checks compounding the problem and trying to control the pandemic. Congress's ineffective action has put states in a very tough position, either close down the economy, control the COVID, but severely reduce people's income or leave the economy partially open to allow people more economic security, but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case. And once again, the Sophie's Choice, and I keep threatening to say this in Polish, but I won't. No matter (laughs) what you choose, it creates harm. Yeah. Actually, last week, Linda uh, tried to mimic you and saying, well, yeah, and it's, yeah, and it's a Sophie's choice indeed. Um, These COVID-19 figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website and the state of Montana. We are certainly nowhere done with this virus yet, as it is still at large in the U.S. and spreading. At over 495,000 deaths, just short of half a million deaths in the U.S., we are still the world leader in COVID-19 deaths by far. As the COVID-19 pandemic took hold, life expectancy in the United States dropped one full year during the first half of 2020, according to a February 18th Center Center for Disease Control and Prevention report, with even greater declines seen among Black and Hispanic people. The U.S. accounted for 20% of all the deaths in the world and for 25% of the confirmed cases, all with still only 4% of the world's population. Yeah, I just saw a roll-up of uh, mortality numbers, and it's... um... Like the rate of it, uh, increase in, um, you know, median age of death among Black Americans is four times the change that it was from last year for us Caucasoids and for, um, you know, his, Hispanics. It was about, it was somewhere halfway, but. Yeah, that's, and that's, and that's grim, grim things to be exceptional at. You're not kidding, actually. Um, And we've been saying since February, and we will keep saying it until a pandemic is beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks, whatever the governor says, to distance themselves from others and to frequently wash their hands if we're going to beat this pandemic. In Montana, we need to bend the curve down this way so our hospitals are not overwhelmed. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, of course, but it's essential. For every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much further from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination, and fully reopening the economy. Yes, and I... (laughs) We, you've been saying that a bit, and it's more true all every week. So uh, speaking of vaccinations, uh, how are we doing? Well, overall, the vaccination uh, process is slow going. Montana has only fully immunized 6.3% of our population as of Friday. However, the Biden administration has promised uh, far more vaccines to be delivered in the upcoming weeks, and hopefully that will 
help speed this process along. Um, but despite the vaccination program being very slow and despite Governor Gianforti pushing teachers off of the quote, essential workers unquote category for advanced inoculation with a vaccine, <clears throat> there has been a strong push to reopen the schools, not only in Montana, but nationwide. While it is undoubtedly difficult uh, to give some children, especially uh, children of low or no wage working class parents, equality education remotely, it is these children that are being used by political leaders to justify reopening the schools. And the Centers for Disease Control has recently issued its guideline for reopening the schools, further bolstering the argument to reopen. But in an analysis published in Naked Capitalism on February 18th, it certainly seems that the CDC school opening guidelines are not entirely based on science. The article points out that a central assumption of the CDC report is, quote, the occurrence of SARS-CoV-2 infection in schools reflects transmission in the surrounding community, end quote. In other words, that schools are not drivers of infection, but merely passive recipients. The report documents that the experience in places such as Montreal and in Europe suggests the exact opposite. And there is an even more central assumption in the CDC report that seems suspicious, that COVID-19 is mostly spread from droplets that immediately fall to surfaces or the ground or wherever, not from aerosols that are suspended in the air like smoke and can fill a room. The report points out that aerosols are not even considered in the CDC report to reopen schools as there is little to no mitigation of aerosol transmission, including no firm recommendation of a minimum of six feet distancing and nothing at all in upgrading ventilation systems. <laughs> even though the CDC and other reports highly recommends both strategies. In a Washington Post column from February 13th, Physician and parent, Liana S. Wen writes, quote, I can understand the argument that in-person schooling is just too important and cannot wait for these improvements. Perfect cannot be the enemy of the good. And we have to accept some level of risk because there is such great harm to keeping kids out of school. If that's the case, however, then vaccinating teachers becomes one of the highest of importance. Yet the guidelines do not require that teachers are offered vaccinations before they return to the classroom. The CDC guidelines do not require that teachers are offered vaccinations before they return to the classroom. While many states have included teachers in priority groups, others have not, including Montana. If the CDC included teacher vaccinations in their guidance, it could compel recalcitrant governors to move teachers to the front of the line. Instead, the many teachers and staff who are already spending hours every day in crowded, poorly ventilated spaces will be forced to continue doing so without the need, needed protection of the vaccine. The lack of focus on teacher vaccination points to a broader problem. The reopening guidelines, guidance from the CDC does not prioritize the health of those who work in schools. And while it might be that a student is safer in school than in an unmonitored childcare setting, it defines common sense to say that a teacher, especially one who is older or has underlying medical conditions, is just as safe in a packed classroom as they are doing remote instruction. 
don't get me wrong. This is a, continuing the quote. Don't get me wrong. As a physician and a parent, I agree that every effort must be made to get our children back to the classroom, especially younger children and those with special needs. But the right way to do it isn't to forego evidence-based common sense requirements. Doing so raises the same question that plagued the CDC under the Trump administration. Is it science or expediency that's driving its decisions? The Biden team has said they want to rebuild trust. These school reopening guidelines could do precisely the opposite, end quote. Yeah, that was a terrific missive you, you have there, Mark, and you, you touched every base and you gave um, a, a good explanation of a whole bunch of disparate um, you know, fact, you know, factoids from physical science and um, uh, things like, uh, you, you know, arch, you know, architectural standards for, for air volume and uh, circulation in a building and the, uh, the efficacy and of, you know, aerosols being in suspension in the air. And, uh, the CDC stuff makes me cringe because, you know, as a safety guy, I've had to do, you know, do calculations like that for, you know, industrial workplaces and uh, classrooms do not qualify as, as the clean rooms that integrated circuits <laughs> are made in or, sp or spacecraft, you know, they're not, uh, you know, they're not negative pressure build rooms or anything like that. So I, it makes me cringe to see the CD say, you know, CDC making such cavalier assumptions about things that are really complicated and have a lot of science in their respective disciplines about where these numbers come from. Right. In a lot of cases, what we live with in daily life are, you know, kicking the bottom of what, of what the standards should be to make life safe. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I, you know, and I'm, as long as I'm this scared, I'm afraid to ask. <laughs> How are we doing on the economic front? Um, please tell me there's some good news somewhere. Um, no, there's absolutely not good news. And um, as it has been for a, for a long, for months and months and months, um, the, the promise by Joe Biden to have $2,000 checks in the hands of Americans by the first week of his tenure has already gone by the wayside. Hmm. And even that promise was too little. It's not, that's not even, you know, it's a misnomer to call that a stimulus check. That isn't going to stimulate the economy. That, that's a survival check is what, yeah. that, what that was. Um, and even that has gone by the wayside, right? And, um, what's more, some Democrats want to means test these checks, right? Oh, and that's just no. a, it, yep. And that's just a terrible idea because we'll, Number one, it will slow down delivery of the money into people's hands. Okay, they, it will two omit some deserving people, maybe a lot of deserving people, and three because what they are proposing is still too little to stimulate the economy, so it can rebound when the pandemic is over. It, it's it's kind of like why why are you applying these um, you know these means testing for for this. Um, you know, last week we talked about that some of the some of our greatest programs are not means tested, like Social Security. Oh, absolutely. Even, School even lunches, you know. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and I mean, it's 
uh, all school lunches are subsidized on means testing, but social security is not. Oh, okay. You have to prove a certain economic, uh, you know, uh, level, you know, below which you can mm-hmm. qualify for free or reduced school lunches. I but bet. social security, Social Security, mm. though, look at look at how great of a program Social Security Absolutely. is, how popular it is. And, you know, uh, Warren Buffett, you know, can get Social Security, whether he gets it or not. I don't know. Right. But but he and, and the brilliance behind that. And, and it was very much discussed in the Roosevelt administration during the New Deal in the 1930s was that um, if if you don't do means testing for it, Okay, that means everyone has a stake in it. <laughs> and it's Indeed. more yeah. difficult to get rid of the program if everyone's got a stake. So even, even if it's a tiny, meaningless stake for a billionaire, right? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> I, while you were describing that, I, um, I thought, well, if there should be means testing for people's, um, you know, right to suffer or <laughs> or avoid suffering of can we have means testing on uh jeff bezos's tax return and does he deserve <laughs> the credit he's gotten um you know credit for his accomplishments credit for taxes unpaid that you know why why don't we ask the people that have that are sucking up all the surplus labor from people working hard and getting less and say, you know, how much of those gazillions do you really need? You know? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, yeah, that's, I think that's that, you, yeah, I don't think that you met the standard that the, that the tax cut was intended to serve. You're um, taking advantage yeah. of somebody. Imagine that. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a really, that's a good argument, Jim. Um, you know, and, and, and kind of a fourth thing is that, look, I mean, the Democrats are making Trump look good. Okay, because, uh, you know, means testing makes the Democrat, Democrats look stingy. Yeah, and, it does you know, just Trump, the opposite Trump of what we stand for. Yeah, Trump Agreed. really never proposed means testing. So it's kind of like what the, I, I don't I don't understand. I, I really don't understand that at all. But what Congress yeah. should, what, what they should have done all along, as we've said many times on the show before, is what most industrialized countries in the world did. Guarantee wages and business overhead costs for the duration of the pandemic. End of story. Right. Right. So none of this would be would matter then. Right. Yeah. And Uh, and in our salad days, uh, you know, we could say most industrialized countries. Now we could say every last one of them. The U.S. isn't just um, a little on the margin, but we've totally fallen off. We're in a world of our own for stinginess and and yeah. uh, rewarding the unworthy and making those that deserve better suffer. So yeah. they looking to pass a temporary band-aid. Yeah. Any other economic news? Yeah. And this is something we've covered before last summer, I believe um, about 
the unemployment rate. What does that really mean? What is that really telling us? Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's a new article uh, published in Politico on January 25th by the former U.S. Comptroller of the Currency. I'm not sure what that person does, but uh, I was going to look it up, but I didn't have time. Um, <laughs> Comptroller of the Currency, Eugene Ludwig, who seriously questions the current official unemployment rate of 6.7%. Ludwig wrote, to be clear, the problem isn't the data itself. The survey data compiled by the Federal Bureau of Labor Standards remains the gold standards for assessing the labor market. The problem is that policymakers depend on the picture painted by the top line statistic to help them understand reality. That picture is completely different if you filter the same BLS data not BS data, but BLS data <laughs> um, to exclude. I think we. I think that's allowable on on radio. Um, anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, of course it is. Yes, um, the same BLS. If, if you filter the same BLS data to exclude part-time workers looking for full-time work and those making less than a poverty wage, pegged conservatively at twenty thousand dollars per year. And that's really conservative. Um, Anyone who wants full-time work but can only find part-time work and those working full-time but earning too little to climb above the poverty line should be considered functionally unemployed. I've begun to calculate this, which I've dubbed the true rate of unemployment or TRU. And the TRU in December wasn't 6.7%. It was an alarming 25.1%. The divergence between the official unemployment numbers and the functional unemployment is stark, and it was bad even before the pandemic. In February 2020, when the economy was supposedly hot, the official BLS release suggested (laughs) that a mere 3.5% of Americans were unemployed, but the TRU number was 24%. Think of that. So even when the economy was purportedly at its peak before the pandemic, approximately a quarter of Americans looking for full-time work at a livable wage couldn't find it. And then at the nation's worst moment in nearly a century, that number jumped showing that 32.4% of the workforce was out of luck. It gets worse. I've also been calculating the ratio of working age adults who are functionally unemployed to the population at large which would include those discouraged workers who stopped looking for unemployment. As of December, a full 53.9% of working age Americans, I'm gonna repeat that, over half of all working age Americans do not have living wage full-time jobs. More disheartening still, it's 80% for those without a high school degree, and almost 60%, 59.5% for those with only a high school diploma. Maybe most troublesome, our research reveals that black Americans tend to glean marginally better employment opportunities for themselves during boom times, but then fall back farther when the economy turns sour, preventing them from ever establishing a real toehold toward economic equality. Today, the situation for black Americans is disgraceful with 30.2% unemployed by TRU 
compared with 22.7% for white Americans, end quote. Yeah, that's, that also is a remarkable missive that you prepared for us there. Is a, it's, it's a lot of you know, wonky information that comes from disparate places that mm-hmm. in, in, as a composite picture with comparing apples to apples, it's, it's horrifying. Yeah. And, yep. uh, you, and the, um, <laughs> the controller of the currency is an interesting job. It started back in 1863 as a position oh. of somebody who'd be responsible for looking at um, supervising all national banks and thrift institutions and federally licensed branches and agencies of foreign banks in the United States. And that sounds to me like something that was created to curb abuses of financing during the civil war and how crazy the economics, the, Hmm. uh, you know, the fiduciary picture (laughs) was in the United States. Hmm, That's interesting. Yeah. So that was also in, in Lincoln also implemented the first, uh, income tax yeah uh, in this country exactly um, yeah during that it was time, an interesting so. time that i don't understand very well but right. that's why we have this show right so that's right we well that was good that was out. a good piece of information jim thanks um uh, i'm i'm pleased that i could find it without making zoom <laughs> crash <laughs> <laughs> which could have happened very recently so this is why the pandemic pandemic hit most people so hard there was a terrible weakness in the economy to begin with yeah absolutely right and passing a 15 dollars an hour minimum wage bill for example will directly help millions of workers pull themselves out of poverty and underemployment it would be one part of a solution going forward uh that in in instead of the band-aids that have passed congress before this Manipulating the data to make things less bad than they really are just sets up for a meltdown politically and economically down the road. Yeah. In so many words, kicking the can down the road. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is a a nexus we're looking at where a lot of things we've been doing for generations, centuries, was fundamentally flawed. And we've just managed to get by. And maybe this is when just getting by comes to screeching halt. Yep. And okay. it looks like one real solution, increasing the minimum wage to $15 an hour is looking less likely to pass in Congress. Yep. That's right, Jim. Say. Unfortunately, as uh, well, and maybe we'll see, but as Politico reported on February 18th, Quote, when Joe Biden met with a group of mayors and governors last week, he bluntly told them to get ready for a legislative defeat. His proposed minimum wage hike was unlikely to happen, he said, at least in the near term. Quote, I really want this in there, but it just doesn't look like we can do it because of reconciliation. And uh, Biden told the group, Um. according to a person in the room. Uh, apparently he said, I'm not going to give up, but right now we have to prepare for this not making it. However, other Democrats, including Representative Pramila Jayapal, Democrat of Seattle, yes. uh, says that this is the best time politically to press for the minimum wage increase. 
and to avoid having to get 10 Republican senators votes for the bill to override the terrible filibuster process, which won't likely happen, the Biden administration would have to go through the reconciliation process. And they are saying they won't likely do that if the Senate parliamentarian rules that the increase in the minimum wage is not relevant to the overall COVID relief bill it is currently a part of. According to a February 11th Politico report, <clears throat> Biden's team is leaning heavily against the idea of having Vice President Kamala Harris use her powers as president of the Senate to keep the minimum wage provision inside the relief package. She could do so if the Senate parliamentarian determines that hiking the minimum wage to $15 an hour does not jibe with budgetary rules that allow a bill to pass with just 51 votes in the Senate. Harris, at that point, could be the tie-breaking vote to bypass the parliamentarian. Said Representative Jayapal, it's a test up for how we use the power of having all three, the House, the Senate, and the White House. Let's not hand ring over this. We should use every tool in our mm. toolbox, end quote. Good for Pramila. And for those who can remember the showdown on January 6th, the, the view from the House gallery uh, was seen everywhere at the, where the, the camera was trained on the people that were at the railing at the first row of seats in the gallery. That was Pramila Jayapal you were looking at, <laughs> taking it all in as her life was in mortal danger as the, as the doors came breaking down. Well, we could use a Congress of, uh, full of Pramila Jayapals, in my opinion. Absolutely. Yeah, she took Jim McDermott's place as a representative from, and from the Seattle area. And Jim McDermott was a hard act to beat. And he would, he had that seat for a gazillion years. And we all wondered how could anyone be better? Well, Pramila is better. She, <laughs> yeah. she yeah. is a force of nature. Yep, absolutely. So we've reported on a recently released study by the Lowry Institute in Australia on how nations ranked in responding to COVID-19 and we have been taking excerpts out of other reports to better understand our exceptional failure. Out of 98 countries, the Lowry Institute studied, the U.S. ended up ranked 94th best overall. Way to go, America. So why has the U.S. done such a poor job with COVID-19 pandemic? What are your well, thoughts? As you, yeah, well, as you said, Jim, we have been covering some perspectives on this. And today we look again at Mark Johnson's excellent reporting in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, which appeared on January 21st under the heading, the U.S. was the world's best prepared nation to confront a pandemic. How did it spiral to almost inconceivable failure? Uh, Johnson summarizes in his introduction about America's lethargic and inconsistent response and its failure to follow basic precepts of its own pandemic playbook. And among the most serious lapses, money for public health had been cut steadily for decades. Both Republicans mm -hmm. and Democrats have cut it. The cuts, and again, we're, we're back to austerity, right? And, and uh, not funding things. 
Um, the cuts became critical because America's leaders ignored warnings about the dire consequences should the federal government abandon its central role in a pandemic and leave states to fend for themselves. When this scenario occurred, some states were forced to compete with one another in order to purchase scarce medical supplies. Further, in the absence of detailed federal guidelines, states imposed a hodgepodge of lockdown policies only to have some undermined by politicians, including the president, which was Trump at the time. Despite more than a decade, <laughs> despite more than a decade of scientific warnings about the specific threat posed by coronaviruses, this is not, this didn't come out of the blue, this pandemic, the government and drug companies allowed a potential vaccine to be shelved for three years instead of testing it in human trials. Trump routinely dismissed the advice of his own health experts, downplaying the severity of the pandemic. The president told journalist Bob Woodward, as recounted in the book Rage, that he played down the pandemic to avoid triggering panic. While leaders of other countries united their citizens behind the idea of collective sacrifice and solidarity, I might add, through lockdowns mm -hmm. and other measures, U.S. leaders, especially the president, politicized the pandemic. When Americans most needed to pull together, they slipped deeper into bitter polarization, end quote. And we will present the rest of Johnson's report in the weeks to come. Yeah, major shout out to uh, Mark Johnson and Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, the president of the international of the union I'm still affiliated with back in Seattle, would always harsh on them because he was a Milwaukee guy and thought the Journal Sentinel was uh, insufficiently you know, arch in its, uh, you know, cause, but, um, you know, the journalism lives, people are still doing good work when they have a chance. Way to go, Mark. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's Johnson and Anderloo. <laughs> okay, Mark, <laughs> what's the next story? Well, and, and I'm sorry here to report another bad look from the Biden administration this week. Um, and that was at his first town hall meeting covered by CNN. According to The Hill on February 17th, President Biden on Tuesday balked at forgiving $50,000 in student loan debt, saying he doesn't have the power to do so unilaterally. Quote, I do think in this moment of economic pain and strain that we should be eliminating interest interest on the debts that are accumulated, number one. And number two, I'm prepared to write off the $10,000 debt, but not 50,000, end quote, mm. Biden said, saying he doesn't believe it can be done with presidential action. The White House previously said the Office of Legal Counsel was reviewing whether Biden could unilaterally cancel federal student loan debt. That came after White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said Biden would sign a bill for giving $10,000 of student loan debt if Congress passed a bill. A group of Democratic lawmakers led by Senate Majority Leader uh, Charles Schumer of New York and Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts reintroduced a measure earlier this month calling on Biden to forgive up to $50,000 in federally held student debt per borrower. Supporters argue that Biden has the authority and responsibility to forgive student debts as the coronavirus pandemic roils the U.S. economy and imposes the greatest burden on those least able to afford it. 
Yeah, that's uh, that's very disturbing. And um, I, I like your choice of the operating verb there, eliminating, because it might not it if it's unsound to say BS instead of BLS. <laughs> I think um, eliminating here is um, could be looked at by a doctor within the same discipline. It, uh, it's very disturbing. This is the future. Education is the path to prosperity and progress and a, a redeeming life for people. And come on, guy, give it up. I hate to sound yeah. pithy, but I, I'm really disappointed in Joe. <laughs> yeah. So uh, he's got a target on his back. So the first question is if he has the authority to cancel $10,000 of student debt, why not 50000 Exactly. Am I reading that correctly, Mark? Yeah. Am I, yeah. Am I not no, that's, that's exactly right. I, you know, I, if, if he doesn't have the authority to do 50000 then how does he have the authority to cancel 10000 It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. And he tried to make the difference between those so-called deserving of student debt forgiveness as having attended land grant or state universities like he did, right? Yeah. Versus well, for a while, versus, then he went to, I think, Syracuse or Cornell, but I did. I, oh, Corn, I, Cornell is definitely Ivy League. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. <laughs> Um, but ver versus the so-called undeserving of those who went to an Ivy League school. He, he actually said that to the questioner, which oh. I, I, I think she should have thrown something at him. But maybe like a shoe like George Bush got thrown. Right, shoe right, right. Um, both <laughs> shoes, you know. Both shoes. Yeah, right. With, <laughs> with, those, <clears throat> with those cocktail waitress spikes that seem to be a, a necessity <laughs> for women in positions of responsibility in our culture. Yes, we do have a way to go. I'm sorry, ladies. <laughs> I empathize with you. Well, I'm, I won't touch that one, but, um, okay. you know, but it, it, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever, right? I mean, comparing state universities to Ivy League schools, two reasons, at least. First, $10,000 in student debt is a very low threshold even for those who attend the University of Montana, which is not an Ivy League school, last I knew. Um, it's as, it's it, ludicrously low. Yeah, it, it's very low. And as the neoliberal Montana legislatures of the past cut taxes and then cut funding for things like higher education, the economic load on students and their families skyrocketed, hence the need for student loans. Not like when Joe went to college, right? Oh, absolutely. Well, he was on an athletic scholarship when he was a Delaware. <laughs> ah, right. So, what, yeah. What was, his, what was his sport? What was his sport? Football. You know? Oh, football. Okay. Yeah, I could tell you stories because I. <laughs> he's a contemporary <laughs> of mine. I'm familiar with his schools and the programs he was in. I gotcha. Well, but anyway. How the, about the, Trump the, University debt forgiveness? Um, <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, in, in all the, the for-profit universities that are kind of scamming, right, the, the federal oh, absolutely. The federal loan system, right? That um, is a scandal. And, and another nonsensical thing about his statement is that students going to Ivy League schools from wealthy families are not the ones taking out loans. 
it is the students from working class families that are taking out on taking out the loans. Oh. So what is what the heck is he talking about? He, I don't know what he is talking about because um, people that have too much money got that way because they never lost an opportunity to get more. And um, <laughs> even if it's something as benign as having a Coverdale trust from the day Junior grew his first tooth, so you're sort of working the system. Mm. Everybody gets money any way they can. Right. Because it's expensive going to school. It's uh, horrifically expensive and it's a national scandal. It is. Our, yeah. You know, how, um, you know, I, you know, as a guy that's been, you know, adjunct faculty at places because I was the best they could do. And I, it's horrible <laughs> to be in that situation. And the big moneymaker for schools now is foreign students. And you see people coming from places that when we were their age were considered underdeveloped countries or excrement hole countries, to use the um, you know, phrase of the last president, you know, you know, former and future president, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they, you know, the, their society thinks that it's significant and worth the price that a country that doesn't have a lot to give is investing into their next generation and paying a lot of money to send these kids to American schools. And they're sitting alongside American kids that are struggling to even be in that seat themselves. The strike, yeah, exactly. it's a striking contrast. Yeah, it is very it's striking. Great to see the world becoming a better place for everybody, but the but as an American raising American kids and someday grandkids, uh, you know, it's why can't we have the things that other people seem to have when we're the richest country in the world? You, I couldn't have said it better myself, Jim. That's really exactly right on on the mark. So, Got lucky. and these, <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and these student loans are often uncollectible, right? And, exactly. or, or they saddle the student for the rest of their lives. I mean, they're never going to be able to pay them back. And as the system has been rigged against them, working class students have a lifetime of anxiety and lower economic well-being and paying back the money the rig system has allowed them. I mean, it's almost like no good deed should go unpunished. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I pay a lot of attention to um, finance shows on community radio, you know, wherever they may be. And I've heard so many, um, you know, voices from the business world explaining what's going on in the world. Come on a show, you know, go to the microphone and say, we got to do something about these darn kids that are graduating from college now. You know, they ride bicycles, have a radio, and they and they live in an old house somewhere and, and rent a room when they should be buying cars and living in the suburbs and, you know, contributing to the economy. How selfish can they be? <laughs> and maybe it's because they can't afford to. Yeah. The banks are getting lots of money. <clears throat> it's just the producers of goods and services that aren't. Well, and it's no secret. We just went through this unemployment analysis, right? Over half mm -hmm. of all working age Americans 
are functionally unemployed. I mean, yeah, absolutely. How is it, Thank you how, for bringing how, that how back can, up. How can people afford, like you say, how can people afford to buy a college education, to buy a new car? I, I, you know, my father would buy a new car every couple of years, right? I mean, I bought a used car. I'm hoping it lasts me the rest of my life, <laughs> you know, um, yes. because I can't, af- I mean, it's just too much. Um, no, it's, it's, much. it's preposterous and it makes, it makes me lie awake at night. That last beer I have is just to forget how challenging <laughs> life is for so many people I care about and a country yeah. I care about. Yeah, it's it's a conundrum, and I I and I'm very pleased that I'm having that. You know, you and I have a chance to participate, um, even with on you know these global issues in the city of Missoula and Missoula County and the region about and where. Where does everybody fit in in a way where they can get their basic needs met? Yeah. And yeah. And that's part of the purpose of this show is to not just throw statistics out, but how is it we came to this place? You right. Because I think most people listening to the show know that things are pretty crappy and, and to know, I mean, basically, we can't find a solution unless we understand what has brought us to this in the world's in the world history's richest nation. I mean, let's yeah. not, let's, let's right. not even make any bones about it. I mean, this, uh, and so, uh, no. Yeah. And the people that created the problem know it. I remember reading, um, you know, financial literature from, um, I think it was Citibank like 10 or 12 years ago. And they were saying this, this revenue machine that is America's market is just super colossal. There has never been so much made by so few people since Spain in the 16th and 17th century. And that's something to brag about. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%.
and you are listening to it in the Missoula Valley on KFGM 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio. Or you are hearing it streaming on Saturdays from noon to 2 on 1055kfgm.org. And uh, you may be listening to it on podcast, now available on anchor.fm and on Spotify and other uh, podcast apps that you might have. Um, And you can search for it under Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99%. Well, Mark, um, what's our next story? Well, um, we're going to go international this half hour um, and look at uh, the largest, some of the largest demonstrations and strikes in world history have been occurring in India over the last couple of months. The neoliberal and Hindu nationalist government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi in September 2020 got the Indian parliament to pass three laws that the Modi government portrayed as modernizing Indian agriculture. However, Indian farmers weren't buying it and massive protests and direct action have erupted since then. And by the way, these laws are pretty much neoliberalism unleashed on oh, a yes. highly, uh, basically a, a highly socialized uh, farm system that has worked since the 1930s in India. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, the protests revolve around three farming laws, which farmers say hurt their income and destroyed their way of life, really. Under the previous legislation, farmers had other goods at auction at their state's agricultural produce market committee, where they were guaranteed to receive at least the government agreed minimum price. There were restrictions on who could buy and prices were capped for essential commodities. The new laws dismantled, the new laws dismantled this committee structure, instead allowing farmers to sell their goods to anyone for any price. Neoliberalism, right? Let the markets decide all this. Prime Minister Narendra Modi has argued that the reforms will modernize, quote unquote, the agricultural industry while giving farmers more freedom to do things like sell directly to buyers or to other states without a middleman. But many farmers say the changes will allow big companies to drive down prices. While farmers could sell crops at higher prices if the demand is there, Conversely, they could struggle to meet the minimum price in years when there is too much supply, end quote. And from Wikipedia, after failing to get the support of their respective state governments, the farmers decided to pressure the central government by marching to Delhi. And the capital is located in New Delhi, which is just outside the Mm -hmm. old city of Delhi. Um, on November 25th, 2020, protesters from Dili Chalo, I hope I'm saying that right, which is translated, let us go to Delhi. <laughs> um, the Dili Chalo campaign were met by police at the borders of the city. The police employed the use of tear gas and water cannons, dug up roads and used layers of barricades and sand barriers to stop the protesters, leading to at least three farmer casualties. Amidst the clashes on November 27th, media highlighted the actions of a youth who jumped onto a police water cannon targeting protesting farmers and turned it off. He was later charged with attempted murder. Mm. 
The march on Delhi was accompanied by a 24-hour strike of 250 million people across India on November 26, 2020, in opposition to both the farm law reform and proposed changes to labor law. So, uh, you know, the Modi government has really mobilized workers and farmers uh, acting uh, in opposition. Between November 28th and December 3rd, the numbers of farmers blocking Delhi in the Delhi Chalo was estimated at 150 to 300,000. The farmers union announced that on December 4th, they would burn effigies of Prime Minister Modi and leaders of corporations. <laughs> Prominent personalities began announcing their plans to return their awards and medals received from the central government. On December 9th, 2020, the farmers, farmers unions rejected the government's proposals for changes in the law, even as the center in a written proposal assured the minimum support price for crops. The, so, there, so the Modi government was backing down on some of their laws. Mm -hmm. The farmers refused to accept even that. The farmers also said they will block the Delhi-Jaipur Highway on December 12th. On December 13th, Rewari police barricaded the Rajas Rajasthan-Haryana border to stop farmers from marching to Delhi. And the farmers responded by sitting on the road and blocking the Delhi-Jaipur Highway in protest. On January 26, 2021, Republic Day, which is the national holiday in India, um, hundreds of thousands protested in Delhi, where tractor rallies and a storming of the historic Red Fort took place. One person died in the protest as his tractor overturned on him. Later, the postmortem said that he died due to hemorrhage due to head injuries. A number of borders into Delhi were blocked by protesters during the protests. On January 28th, the residents of the border villages, which the farmers occupied, staged protests to make farmers vacate the sites as it affected their commute. They also accused the farmers for disrespecting the Indian tricolor flag at the Red Fort. In a similar protest by the locals at the Singu border on January 29th, they clashed with protesting farmers and stones were thrown from both sides. Police used tear gas and Laffy charge to disperse them off. Laffy charges, Laffy's are long uh, batons, basically, that uh, was used frequently during the uh, struggle for independence uh, with Gandhi and Nehru and, and the rest. Yeah. Um, and they were- so it's, it's astounding how much of this mirrors that, that same history. Yes, absolutely. And our own current history. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to so, have lots to say about that. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. The done. This is fascinating. Um, in early February, uh, metal barricades, cement walls, and iron nails, nails were put up on the roads leading to the three main borders of Delhi to block any vehicles from entering the city. Barbed fences were also put up to prevent people from entering Delhi on foot. Um, so it goes into another, here's another uh, account of what happened on January 26. Tens of thousands of the farmers protesting the agricultural laws held a parade with a large convoy of tractors and drove into Delhi. The farmers drove in long lines of tractors, riding horses or marching on foot. The parade started from the Singu border, Tikri border and 
Ghazipur in Delhi on the routes approved by the police. The farmers were barred from entering the central part of the city where the official Republic Day parade was taking place. At the Singhu border starting point, according to the police estimates, around 7,000 tractors had gathered. That's a, quite a picture. Uh, Reuters reported citing farmers unions that close to 200,000 tractors had participated overall. At around 8 a.m., a few hours early from the permitted time, farmers started to gather separately at the different borders. The tractor rally commenced from the Singhu border and was designated to follow a decided route. However, as the rally progressed, it deviated and marched toward other routes. The protesters marched toward the, uh, one of the city's metro stations and the city center and broke through the barricades. The Delhi police used tear gas and baton charges uh, and baton charged the pro protesting farmers leading to several clashes. Several metro stations were closed and mobile internet was suspended by the police. A farmer, Navreet Singh, reportedly died on the spot while driving the tractor. The police claim he died after he lost control and his tractor overturned on him while he was trying to break through the barricades. Farmer union leaders and the victim's family disputed the police version of the incident and claimed that he died after being shot in the head by police. And the event was witnessed by other farmers near the site. The police in Uttar Pradesh, Madhya Pradesh and Haryana filed three sedition chart cases against journalists including India Today's Rajdeep Sardesai and the con Congress politician Sashi Tharoor for blaming Navreet's death on a gunshot. <laughs> so, the, so the state's coming after uh, any dissenters. Mm -hmm. the, uh, the protesters entered the Red Fort of Delhi and one of the farmers was seen climbing a flagpole in front of the fort, hoisting the religious flag Nishan Sahib on the flagpole. The clash between police and farmers also caused damage to facilities inside the fort. 394 policemen and thousands of farmers were reported injured. 30 police vehicles were damaged and internet services were suspended for hours in several parts of Delhi and the NCR region. The police took hours in vacating the fort premises after continuous announcements and use, use of force. After the January 26 tractor march, the police constructed cement barricades, dug trenches, and cemented nails at all three borders where farmers continue to protest. The barricading and police has restricted movements of locals, farmers, as well as journalists to the protest site, end quote. But tens of thousands of farmers remain encamped at the barricades as we speak. That's absolutely astounding. I'm glad you went through a chronology like that and, and saw and and illustrated the increase in momentum. January 26th sounds a lot like January 6th. <laughs> Doesn't, you know, right down to desecration of the flag, people are getting harshed on for. Right. And it also reminds me of Gandhi's march to the sea for salt. Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, it's funny how some problems never go away. They 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 come back they come back in a new shape and form it, you yeah. know it reminded i was thinking of the um you know the green yellow vest action in yeah. france a year or two ago right and in the uh and the 
um, and the worker and miner strikes and farmer strikes in the Andean countries. Yes. People were, you know, joining to, to make a, a group statement. So, yep. and, and then and, a and, part of me was thinking back to, you know, old Jolie Mai in the late sixties, you may remember that Mark. And boy, it all, it looked all of us like the Vietnam war was going to be, um, you know, the dawning of the age of Aquarius and, <laughs> Didn't work yeah. out that way, but you know, it looks like the na- there are nascent threads here <laughs> that show, um, you know, progress shall happen, like it or not. Well, I, I think that the uh, one thing that's you know very common among all the examples that you gave, because last year at this time before the pandemic, we were covering Chile and Bolivia, right. and Argentina and Ecuador and Lebanon and Hong Kong mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, Hon- uh, thank you, Hong Kong. I forgot all yeah, about that. Yeah, and that was your, a very your, big deal. in Iraq and Iran mm-hmm. and Russia and you in Europe and the United States protests against neoliberalism. Okay, this this is completely against neoliberal so-called reforms of agriculture in India, mm-hmm. as well as as well as the labor law. And but agriculture has kind of a special place, of course, because India is a is a gigantic country with lots of mouths to feed. Right. And the the basically the 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 regulated you know uh, some say socialist model of Indian agriculture has really worked well um, it for the most has. part. And similarly, it was the model emerging from the 30s is about what has remained in place in um, Western Europe and Japan, where agriculture is... Yeah, as, yeah, it was revered as a, as a remnant or a feature of the culture. That, you know, sure, you know, you could... You could grow huge amounts of X, Y, and Z, but the local farmer, the small farmer who is making, you know, artisanal food is a feature of our society and we're willing to absorb the cost. And uh, somehow Western Europe and Japan have managed to survive and the places where plantate, where the, the modern equivalent of plantation agriculture you know, corporate, you know, energy intensive mega agriculture is causing disruptions. Yeah, absolutely. Because it is in the United States. And and we've been talking about that on this show too, or at least those features of it that affect people directly in in Montana. And you've had some great guests to flesh it out. Yeah, absolutely. And just kind of a personal story. Um, So my, my, on my father's side of the family, um, we're, mm-hmm. are still dairy farmers in good for um, them. North, Northeast Iowa. And one of the, one of the big, most important things about dairy farming, which usually is like a 40 cow operation, right? The family mm-hmm. farm, um, which we romanticize, but which we absolutely have allowed to be destroyed. Um, it was price supports for milk. And if you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. And and lots of farmers, like in the Farmers Union and the National Farm Organization, Mm -hmm. have historically 
called for exactly what India has, um, price support. So, there, so the price won't fall below, you know, 50% of the price of production, say. Right. And, and so, as, you know, if you think about it, farmers, uh, either if they grow crops or even like beef and, 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 and mm-hmm. pork, they have to plan and, and they have to invest a full, almost a full year ahead of time before they get any money back for it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so if, and if they invest all this money and the price plummets, okay, then they could go bankrupt. And dairy was especially that way. Dairy was, is different because it's kind of a continue. You have to milk the cows twice a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, and I worked in a dairy, I worked in, you know, my <laughs> grandparents dairy yeah, um, same here. And, yeah, and you only you it was in to, you know West Central Vermont, not Iowa. Oh, okay. Well, that's a good dairy's place too. Um, but um, but the but if you if if you know if you can't sell your milk immediately, right? It doesn't right. store very well. You have to make it into cheese or something else. But uh, but as a commodity, um, having price supports really supported family dairy farms. And when those subsidies were taken away, you know, finding family dairy farms is pretty tough anymore. Oh, absolutely. And it's been an issue in the United States for decades now. It, it has. And, yeah. And um, it'll be interesting to see what our new, uh, I think, Secretary of Agriculture, Tom Vilsack does. Yeah, I'm not holding my breath, but yeah, well, but it's going to be interesting. He's, he's close to it. Um, we probably do a whole week. Yeah. But he's, he's he's, industrialized agriculture. Right. But he's pretty close to industrialized agriculture. (laughs) Yes, he is. Yes, he is. I am. So, but we'll see. Yeah. And I've, I, I do think it's ironic that the, the societies that are the most prosperous and mo and most healthy and food has something to do with health you know um <laughs> are these same places that have that have made agriculture a niche and have said you know this is a this is a protected heritage you right. know, we will subsidize it because it's important that we maintain this it's so funny to be wandering around in japan as i've done a lot of and uh, you'll see a skyscraper surrounded by rice fields. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you'll see a strip mall and there'll be a parking lot. And then right next to the parking lot, there are rice fields <laughs> and they're interwoven in the, in the urban fabric where you'd think that they're, you know, that's sort of a reverse Gresham's law of, um, you know, good money, good land forces out bad, and it ends up being used for its most profitable purpose. But they have a law that says if something has been a rice field, it shall remain a rice field. You can put a building someplace else, but, but this is, this is fundamental to who the, who we are as Japanese and our culture. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I wish we did more of that here actually. Well, who uh, says we can't? That's why there's community radio. And that's, right, like that's right. That's right. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. So, 
Our next, our next story is uh, we're going to go to a neighbor of India, and that's Myanmar, um, mm-hmm. which when I was growing up, it was called Burma. Yeah, um, they were both fighting WW2. That's right. <laughs> yeah, the Burmese road, front. right? Exactly. Well, a- according to um, uh, Public Broadcasting Service on February 18th, tens of thousands of demonstrators filled the streets in Myanmar, Uh, to protest former civilian leader Aung San Suu Kyi, her trial, which began this week in secret. Protesters have been calling for the reinstatement of democracy since the military launched a coup, a military coup on February 1st, which isn't the first time they've done that. Um, At secret locations across Myanmar, healthcare workers who used to work for the government now say they work for the people said a doctor, this will be a great trouble for the military control, this kind of civil disobedience movement. It's the kind of protesting. Do not obey the orders prescribed by the military, end quote. This doctor asked us to withhold his name for security reasons. He is on strike from a government hospital and instead treating anti-coup protesters. And he says Myanmar's, uh, the doctor's strike is only the beginning. If the health system, he said, if the health system fail and shut down, they might get a lot of problem. We started the movement and asked every ministry and other departments to join us to make it bigger, stronger society movement, end quote. Hundreds of thousands of public servants are on strike as part of a civil disobedience movement or CDM. They defy military limits on gatherings to launch the country's largest protests in more than 10 years. Firefighters created their own fire brigades. Engineers stopped constructing buildings. When the real police arrived to arrest the doctors, citizen police rushed into the street to protect them. And teachers refused to teach in government schools. Aymin Tant is a Burmese journalist who was part of a Reuters team that won a Pulitzer Prize for stories critical of the Burmese military that landed two of its reporters in prison. She says the civil disobedience movement is targeting the states and military's foundations. Protesters heard the military might seize money from banks, so they blocked the central bank and called on bank staff to join the movement. Protests also try to prevent the junta from collecting taxes. Aymin Tant said, things that really, direct, really directly impact the any government's ability to government and and their policy and fund what they're doing is is target and now the junta is beginning to use violence in southern myanmar police fired rubber bullets in the north soldiers fired to disperse the crowd and this week for the first time since protests began soldiers appeared on the streets in armored vehicles the military spokesman claim claims civil servants are being manipulated Quote, we felt that the protesters are inciting the violence and illegally pressuring civil servants. The protesters have become violent rather than peaceful, end quote. This week, there were break dancing protesters, musician protesters who played a well-known anthem of resistance and young men who wanted to infuse the protests with some muscle. They were without their shirts, right? And apparently (laughs) are working out, right? 
Um, yes, it's like straight out of Jersey the, Shore. Yeah, that's right. Um, many younger protesters want more than the coup's reversal. They want a new founding document that removes the military's power for good. Says Tant, there is a contingency who their main demand is the release of Aung San Suu Kyi, like a return to the status quo. And then there's another contingency that says no. That is much more on the side of a more radical change. The doctor we spoke to says civil disobedience will continue. He said, just listen to the voice of the people because this is a country that we own. We all need to get our voices louder than a small group of the military people, end quote. The military though small holds the levers of power but it's outnumbered by protesters who hope to reduce that leverage by creating a society that's run by the people. That's and, exciting news. And, yeah. uh, and, and um, what has been reported so far is um, an a economic and political struggle. But what's, all, what's also going on in the background is the Myanmar's mistreatment of ethnic and, um, you know, religious minorities, you know, this is the land of the Rohingya. Look at the mess that that is. And that yep. and and just within the last couple of hours, you, you, I'm starting to see things appear from international sources saying that it's that um, the uh, the minority groups are, you know, are becoming very, very active in what's going on here in what is in the past has been, you know, social and political. So this is kind of neat. It kind of, it reminds me a little bit of, um, say, Eastern Europe in the, in the late 1980s and how um, it just, you know, the pieces, you, you couldn't prop the pieces up any longer because the, the people right. had a common vision of, um, you know, coming back into control. And um, yeah. I'm reminded a little bit of Cuba when they chased Batista out. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, um, as we said before, this is not the first time the military um, has uh, fomented a coup uh, and mm -hmm. usurped democracy. Um, apparently, um, they have a political party, the military does, and they got, no I think... Out of like four or five hundred seats in the parliament, they got maybe maybe twenty, and so uh, and so oh. it's sort of, and so uh, you know apparently things aren't going as they liked. Now there's been a long history of struggle, um, of organization, of mm -hmm. of experience in dealing with the military, and you know this PBS uh, news report. The people they interviewed were very, comp I mean, they were like, nope, th th this is the end of the military. They, we are sick and tired of this. We have fought them before, nonviolently, right? Very mm -hmm. much nonviolently. And we're now in, they're in this massive civil disobedience campaign, um, which will, you know, uh, if you think about it, the military is dependent upon, um, or any power, you right. know, if you want to think about it, uh, the Biden administration is dependent upon, uh, like others, and, and dependent upon a whole lot of people 
uh, obeying their orders and complying mm-hmm. with what's going on. And if you withdraw that, if you withdraw that permission, if you withdraw your labor, if you withdraw your money, if you withdraw your, uh, uh, you, you know, legitimacy mm-hmm. from sure. these, th- that's the way to bring them down. They cannot survive long. Right, right. Then we've yes, seen this people, over and over again. If if absolutely. enough people rise up and they lose the fear of being just another poor person singled out by a death squad, right? Um, it all comes apart, right? I, you absolutely. know, it's happened. It's worked that way for thousands and thousands of years. You know, right. look what happened in Iran. You know, the Shah yeah. was pretty sure that he had the power to control the dialogue control people's behavior he he had the fourth he was was overwhelmed at 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 the time he had the fourth largest military in the world i know my um (laughs) my my former employer played a huge role in that and did their job well Hmm. yep yep so that's inspiring and and i i think that's that's something that we hear in this country I mean, you know, we, we talk about the oligarchy, the rich mm-hmm. running things here, mm-hmm. and that we don't really have a functioning democracy in effect. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, this is something we should aspire to. We should, um, we should be learning from these countries about uh, not only, uh, you know, the sort of mechanics of this, mm-hmm. but also the inspiration of, of how long that these struggles often take and it's not going to be it's not going to be a short struggle here no Um, i i I think we also have to believe that you know the 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 oligarchy you know it's Mm -hmm. it is not immune from being toppled yeah we and it's uh and it's a painful process you know democratization moves by fits and starts you know uh you know, Central Europe and Eastern Europe and uh, Soviet bloc, um, you know, had a dawning and a, you know, Paris Troika and awakening. And, um, and what we end up with is Orban and the Polish government and uh, the Belarusian government and Vladimir Putin. Ukrainian government. <laughs> Ukraine. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> we should have started there. I appreciate that you brought that up. And in um, and in Iran, um, did things really change? Kind of yes, kind of no. Um, so it's it's challenging to look at it and hold your head high and have faith. But what the heck? Yeah. Why not? And I think yeah. if anything, the experience in our own hemisphere, you know, Monroe Doctrine seems to mean that we get to control everybody all the time. And anyone in any, with any authority has to have has to be a marionette to um, the deep state. <laughs> so it's all it's and I think that it's it hasn't been that that you know democratization hasn't been in parallel with the rest of the world and maybe in the in lower latitudes in the Western Hemisphere, um, we could have done better, you know. <laughs> It's oh, like Cuba is the only is the only outlier 
And there are no lack of critics that say, who'd ever want to live in a country like that where everything is run down? Well, the people right. that are living there are, are of high spirits, even if the physical plan is run down. Yeah. And, and, and it, it kind of like with the argument with Venezuela, right? That, U.S. economic embargoes, which is an act of war, has been ongoing ongoing in Cuba for decades and in Venezuela for several years, right? And uh, so, so it's it's kind of like uh, you know, it's kind of like saying, well, yeah, uh, we're we're gonna sabotage your economy, and then we say, look you know, it didn't work. <laughs> right? right. I right. mean, that's, that's, that's the equivalent. And, and I'm afraid the Biden administration is, is completely in lockstep with that kind of attitude. Oh, I so hope that it isn't. <laughs> I, 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 boy, that if, if anything, um, I, I think it's, uh, they're, they're already kind of backing uh, their, their I, guy. I know it concerns me a lot, concerns me a lot. Um, yeah. and, and I, I, I refuse to give up hope on Joe because I was traumatized by the same nuns that he was in the same school. <laughs> and <laughs> look disclosure. how you turned out. Yeah. Ex- <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and, and so, um, he has gotten the message that we are small, but virtue and a righteous path are great. And we're all servants of 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 the light of what the humanity is capable of and well and i can think that there were people in the prior administration that didn't think that way not mentioning any names right right well hopefully hopefully you know i mean i i don't say that with any confidence but you know things could always be better and we're gonna that's gonna be the next break Okay. And then, so let's start with, uh, actually, why don't you start with. Um, oh, okay. It, you it's want not me a, to be the marked man there. And, yeah. And, and don't say part two. And, and so, yeah, don't say welcome. Say we're back to our continuing discussion of the news. Of the oh, day. sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Let's do it that okay. way. And how are we doing for net time now? Are we about 25 minutes to go, 20 minutes to go? Uh, about that. Yep. About that. So we're, we're doing pretty That's good. That's my internal clock. Yeah. <laughs> the production <laughs> guy speaks. <laughs> so go, go ahead and intro and I'll, I'll do the big part here. Got it. So we're back to our continuing discussion on the news of the day. Our topic is rooted in our word of the day deregulation and how it applies to the catastrophic failure of the Texas electricity grid this week. This is going to be good. I just know it, Mark. <laughs> this yeah. is such a foobar. <laughs> it, it truly With so, is. So many delicious villains to lash at. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, it's, it, it's causing kind of unspeakable suffering for people in texas really and it always does that's the worst part yeah that is the worst part of it so So, i feel badly about making fun of it (laughs) well we can make fun of the uh, villains right and and there are villains um so the collateral damage of the texas power grid power failure 
is getting worse and worse. From the February 19th edition of the Wall Street Journal, uh, quote, more than 14 million people are without safe drinking water. I'll say it again, 14 million people without safe drinking water. As a fallout of a severe winter storm, that's a historic toll. Cities including Austin, Houston, and San Antonio are under boil water notices until Monday. Some residents are bringing shovels full of snow to flush their toilets. I, yeah, they're learning from Montana, right? Um, the <laughs> right. <har> Shoveling snow. <laughs> the harsh yeah. weather, that's right. The harsh weather has crippled Texas's energy grid, leaving more than 4 million residents without electricity during the peak of the blackouts, many of them remaining without heat in sub-freezing conditions for days on end. The cold snap has also caused a wave of burst water pipes, which led to a loss of water pressure and a shortage. Huge swaths of residents without clean water don't have electricity needed to boil it amid the, the continuing outages. Many others have pipes that are dry. And this from a February 18th Fox News report. I don't often quote Fox News, but they did a good job. This um, After a deadly blast of winter weather overwhelmed the electrical grid and left millions of Texans without power, hospitals in the state are also facing, facing the additional stress of water shortages, crowded emergency rooms, and even being forced to evacuate patients. And of course, this is all in the midst of a pandemic. In Austin, hospitals dealt with a loss in water pressure and heat. St. David's South Austin Medical Center said Wednesday night that it had lost water pressure from the city of Austin. Since water feeds the facility's boiler, the hospitals were also losing heat. Hospital officials were working to evacuate some patients to other area facilities and said they were distributing bottles and jugs of water to patients and employees. Officials added that they were working with the city to secure portable toilets. In Southwest Austin, uh, officials with Ascension Seton Southwest Hospital said that they too were facing intermittent issues with water pressure. The Austin American Statesman reported the hospital was rescheduling elective surgeries to preserve bed capacity and personnel as a, re a result. At Houston Methodist, two of its community hospitals did not have running water but still treated patients, with most non-emergency surgeries and procedures canceled for Thursday and possibly Friday, spokeswoman Gail Smith told the Associated Press. Emergency rooms were crowded due to patients being unable to meet their medical needs at home without electricity. Smith said. She added that pipes had burst in Methodist hospitals but were being repaired as they happened. FEMA, Federal Emergency Management Agency, sent generators to support water treatment plants, hospitals, and nursing homes in Texas, along with thousands of blankets and ready-to-eat meals, officials said. In an urgent call to action, the Texas Restaurant Association said hospitals in the state were in serious need of food for their staff and patients and said it was working to coordinate food donations, end quote. Well, it sounds like the Alamo all over again. Mm. <laughs> it's <laughs> in, in, a, in a place that, uh, you know, loves its, its um, tragic heroism <laughs> and makes a big deal out of it. This is, this 
is a disgrace and a disaster. I've spent a lot of time in Texas. The Permian Oil Basin paid for my excellent education at the University of Texas. It's only $3 a credit hour, sort of a segue to a topic we had in the last hour. And to see a state that can be so marvelous and generous and big thinking to be to be groveling like this out of a, a lack of vision um yeah bubba it just kind of hurts yeah why is this happening yeah. well texas governor greg abbott offered up that it's windmills failing in the coal that almost brought down the electric grid that 100 political explanation explains nothing as wind generator generator failure accounted for a fraction of the system failure. Natural gas, coal, and nuclear production failures accounted for the vast majority of the power failure. James Galbraith, chair in government and business relations at the University of Texas at Austin, has a far better explanation. He explains why this mess was a predictable result of unwarranted faith in free market ideology as safety and redundancy are costs that profit maximizers seek to avoid. This article was published at the Institute for New Economic Thinking website on February 18th. Quote, Vladimir Lenin, who was a better economist than former Texas Governor Rick Perry, <laughs> that in itself I think is hilarious, yeah, um, he's known as Hair Perry back home. <laughs> yeah. He doesn't fool anybody. Yeah, Lenin once defined communism as Soviet power plus electrification of the whole country, end quote. <laughs> Competing with Joseph Stalin, the New Deal under Franklin Roosevelt built dams and strung power lines in America's backcountry, including Montana. Lyndon mm-hmm. Johnson, then a young congressman, got Roosevelt to help build the Mansfield Dam. Not the Mike Mansfield Dam, but the right. Mansfield Dam. <laughs> Thank you for uh, um, elucidating that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I got to be clear about that. Um, we, we're always we want to keep our facts straight here. Um, anyway, it was Johnson that got Roosevelt to help build the Mansfield Dam, which brought public power to the Texas Hill Country, and another, the Tom Miller Dam, which brought it to the city of Austin. Times changed. Texas grew and the cult of the free market took control of the state's government. Economists lit the way forward. Electricity is the ultimate standard product. Every jolt exactly like every other. Texas had a self-enclosed grid cut off from interstate commerce and so is exempt from federal regulations. There's the deregulation part, right? Right. What better place to prove the virtues of a competitive deregulated system? Under New Deal style regulations, electric utilities got a rate of return on their investment governed by a utility commission that set and stabilized prices. Just like Montana is now. We return back to, we have the public service commission that sets and regulates the uh, monopolies, which is Northwestern <laughs> Energy and Mo- Montana Dakota Utilities, and some of the, a few of the electric co-ops um, in Montana. Anyway, um, what better place to prove the virtues of, of a neoliberal deregulated system? Um, the uh, New Deal style regulations was in principle enough to cover construction and maintenance and a fair profit. 
not so much as to amount to monopoly profits. Utilities were a stable but dull business, municipal socialism. Economists complained there was an incentive, they said, for such utilities to overinvest. The bigger their operations, the higher the total costs, the more they could extract from rate setters. What to do? Economists proposed a free market. Let generating companies compete to deliver power to the consumer through the common electrical grid. Freely chosen contracts would govern the terms and the price. Competition would assure bare bones, lean and mean efficiency and low, low prices most of the time, reflecting the cost of fuel plus the smallest possible profit margin. The role of the state would be minimal just to manage the common grid through which power flows from the producer to the consumer. In times of shortage, prices might rise. But then the market would decide. Those who did not wish to pay could always flip their switches off. <laughs> it was a perfect <laughs> textbook setup. Sure. I thought, That's so he, funny. <sighs> yes. Uh, it, was a it was a perfect textbook setup with supply on one side, demand on the other, and a neutral manager in between. True, there were a few loose ends. One is that demand for electricity is what economists call inelastic. Mm -hmm. It doesn't respond much <laughs> to price, but it does respond to changes in the weather. And at such times of heat or cold, the demand becomes even more inelastic. Another detail was that in an ordinary market, there can be some play in the relationship between supply and demand. If even a fishmonger does not sell his catch, he can, at the end of the day, cut his price or even freeze the haddock for the following day. Electricity is not like that. Supply has to exactly equal demand every single minute of every single day. If it doesn't, the entire system can fail. This system therefore had three vulnerabilities. First, it created an incentive for cutthroat competition to provide power in the cheapest possible way which meant with machinery, wells, meters, pipe, and also <laughs> windmills that were not insulated ex against extreme cold, a rarity but not unknown, even in Texas. Second, it left prices free to fluctuate. And we had covered, uh, well, maybe not covered last week, but there was a, uh, a notice issued by the uh, Electricity Authority, ERCOT, saying that mm -hmm. prices, are, because of this failure, are going to rise dramatically for consumers. So just, <laughs> that's the prices free to fluctuate part. It ensured that when prices rose the most, that would be at exactly those moments when the demand for power was the greatest, which is now. Mm -hmm. In 2002, under Governor Rick Perry, Texas deregulated its electricity system. After a few years, the electrical free market managed by a nonprofit called ERCOT was fully established. Some 70 or so providers eventually sprung up. While a few cities, including Austin, kept public power, they were nevertheless tied to the state system. The market system could and did work out most of the time. Prices rose and fell, and customers who didn't sign long-term contracts faced some risk. One provider 
called Gritty. Oh, that's G- a wonderful G-R-I-D-D-Y. name. G-R-I-D-D-Y. <laughs> it is a wonderful name. Um, had a special model for $9.99 a month, $9.99 a month, (laughs) you could get your power at whatever the wholesale price was on any given day. That was cheap most of the time. The problem with price was on any given day. Uh, Oh, no. The problem with most of the time is that people need electric power all of the time. And Texas's leaders knew as of 2011, at least when the state went through a short, severe freeze, that the system was radically unstable in extreme weather. That was in 2011. Mm -hmm. But they did nothing. To do something, they would have had to regulate the system. And they didn't want to regulate the system because the providers, a rich source of campaign funding, didn't want to be regulated and to have to spend on weatherization that was not needed most of the time. In 2020, even voluntary inspections were suspended due to COVID-19. Now enter the deep freeze of 2021. Demand went up, supply went down, natural gas froze up at the wells, in the pipes, and at the generating plants. Unweatherized windmills also went offline, a small part of the story. Since Texas is disconnected from the rest of the country, no reserves could be imported, and given cold everywhere, there would have been none available anyway. There came a point on Sunday, February 14th, or the next day, when demand so outstripped supply that the entire Texas grid came within minutes of a collapse that, we are told, would have taken months to repair. As this happened, the price mechanism failed completely. Wholesale prices rose a hundredfold, but retail prices under contract did not, except for the unlucky customers of Gritty, who got socked with bills for thousands of dollars each day. So they're going to be faced with some massive bills, um, even when this is all over. Mm -hmm. Um, ERCOT was therefore forced to cut power which might have been tolerable had it happened on a rolling basis across neighborhoods throughout the state. But this was impossible. You can't cut power to hospitals, fire stations, and other critical facilities, or for that matter, to high-rise downtown apartments relying on elevators. So lights stayed on in some areas, and they stayed off for days on end in others. Selective socialism, might one might call it. <laughs> when, the light, when, the, when the lights go off and the heat goes down, Water freezes, and that was the next phase of the calamity. For when water freezes, pipes burst, and when price bursts, the water supply cannot keep up with the demand. So across Texas, water pressure is falling. As I type these words, hospitals without water cannot generate steam, and therefore heat. And some of, the, some of them are being evacuated right now. Meanwhile, ice is bearing down on the power lines. For most of us, it's a waiting game. We know that power will come back soon, just as it is no longer so desperately needed. We don't know how long before water supplies are fully restored. Food is a matter of how well prepared you were beforehand. Anyone without ready cash, anyone who relied on official information, anyone who just didn't get out before the storm, all those anyones have a problem. Rick Perry has assured us that as Texans, 
we prepare to sacrifice ourselves to avoid the curse of socialism. But it's too late now. In the aftermath of this debacle, we will return to New Deal style municipal socialism or this disaster of power, water and gas will happen again. Socialism is government in technical matters by engineers and others who know their stuff and not by ideologues who do not. Compared to Texas right now, it's not such a bad prospect. In the USSR, despite all its other flaws and the Russian cold, the power and the heat did stay on. Even in the worst of the post-Soviet free market collapse, the Moscow Metro, a triumph of municipal socialism, never stopped. And that here, was here. James Galbraith writing. Uh, or uh, about, Jamie, yeah. Or Jamie, right, yeah. James Gotta is stand a up for my Longhorn buddy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that that so I, I think he captured it at the best of that. I've read many different analysis of it. I think he exactly. captures it exactly right. Well, it was it was spot on. But you know, he had a pretty smart dad, as you have you were yes. as you reminded me, Mark. Yes. But, um, yes. Yeah. Well, how long did we have to listen to ridiculous people? talk about how the problem in Texas was those darn windmills. And, um, and, I, and I went to the power generation industry and looked at some trade journals, and the, and the number that came up was, um, you know, Texas has more windmills than any other state. They have like 15,000 right. of them. And um, so they're about 23% of total production and they were and, and, about and most, one third of the failure. So yeah. what they and, had worst. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So so if you dive into the numbers a little deeper than what um that the great expert, Senator Daines, was, um, you see <laughs> that the that the failure was proportional. Every it, it was um more a systemic right. lack of discipline in the engineering. Um, systems they had to winterize and make the and make the capacity to produce power more robust and stable. So, um, right, I, I thought <laughs> this is interesting. So maybe there's something more to say about the wind turbines themselves because they're they're used at every latitude. Most of the wind turbines, you know, come from Denmark and Siemens Gamesa. Uh, they so these are these are high high latitude endeavors you know and yeah. so I, I it was a great piece in the business section of uh, syracuse.com and they, mm. they we and um <clears throat> and they spoke with a with a representative from edpr which is the largest owner and operator of wind power in new york and the fourth largest in the united states and Amy Curl, senior management, said, "You know what? You know what's the issue here? You know, and, I, and I'll quote directly: There are a variety of cold weather and anti-icing technologies that are used on wind turbines in the coldest regions. These technologies help prevent the buildup of ice on turbine blades, detect ice when it cannot be prevented, and remove ice safely when it is." And she said, so they have, the key is 
they have heating element blades and they monitor vibration in the blade as ice accumulates and if it and if it accumulates to a degree that is going to affect balance or the aerodynamic shape of the blade they make the blade stop they heat it up the ice falls off on you know and falls straight down to the ground instead of being spun like missiles all over the place <laughs> and it's no big deal so they say so for safety reasons turbines are shut down why the heating elements melt off the ice, she said. But the turbine, and I'll quote, turbines in Texas are built for the type of temperatures they usually get in Texas, where it's 110 degrees, not 10 degrees, she said. It's a cost thing. Mm -hmm. She points out, they, they do not have the precautions to allow them to operate. So, so the numbers fall in line. Um, every technology has to be robust and had to be built up to work in the environment, in, in not just the, um, everyday environment, but the potential environment. Right. So, you know, uh, so valves on natural gas lines were screwing up, <laughs> you know, they could, they, um, you know, coal had issues that I didn't bother to write down, but I remember reading <laughs> <laughs> so um is so everything happened in a way that made perfect sense once you look at the issues and the people that were saying how terrible the windmills were uh didn't do their homework and they were just using talking points and being shills for those who were who you know perpetrated this terrible, terrible thing on the poor people of Texas. Yeah, exactly right. And it, it, it goes to show as well uh, the, uh, I guess, the danger of using the profit motive yeah. to deliver things that are essential for people, right? Because as, as I said at the beginning there that... Um, you know, this was a predictable result of unwarranted faith in free market ideology because safety and redundancy are uh, costs that profit maximizers want to avoid at all costs. Oh boy. That's the, uh, that's the $64,000 question answered succinctly. Um, and I speak now as a guy who was a reliability and maintainability engineer at Boeing and was and had signature authority on programs. And I had a very challenging job having to defend steps that would, in, that would require extra engineering that was overlooked in the zeal to get things done on time and under budget. And, yeah. Um, yeah. It, 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 uh, it was, um, there are lots and lots of 12 ounce cans that were drained sitting outside my house when I got home from work, wondering <laughs> how am I going to live with myself? What can I do to make, to make people see? And I saw this and the space program, 
you know, we were, we were doing just fine in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And then when the great communicator came along, there was zeal about... Um, and for, for those of you who don't remember, that was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I know. Um, I know this is community radio and we like to be upfront and name names, but, you know, <laughs> Jim just can't bring himself sometimes. <clears throat> and, uh, and we had two shuttle disasters. Mm-hmm. In pretty rapid succession. And I was, I was living in Cudahy or Wisconsin at the time and laddish steel company which was across the street from our apartment were the people that made the flanged rings that that captured the the seal on the on the fuel tanks that failed and led to such a you know such a horror and it was you know, the people that were doing their job and making the product did what they knew how to do and followed instructions it was ch- Decisions from on high that compromise safety. Yeah. And cost cutting, right? Making. Oh, make yeah. Always, money. always. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, Boeing's in the news <laughs> for just such a thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. And um, and I, I don't mind. I, I don't want I'm not going to bring it up because it's just going to mean that that block of stock I have in the company. Gets, <laughs> it's 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 punched down even further. Yeah. But well, all these yeah. problems are solvable if you just change the equation. It's all about getting a job done in a way that serves people and is reliable and safe. <laughs> Yeah. And and those that expect to be making money, um, I think need to redirect their energies. Pope Francis has lots to say on this topic. Yeah. Yeah, he does. I think is why in the two in the, when was it the twenty twelve election? There there the uh, every uh, every nominee of one party was saying, you know, that guy had no business talking about um, you know what we should or shouldn't do based on based on what's what's right for the human race we own the faith and values brand and you can't come over in this hemisphere and impinge on it because it's our property and we paid for it <laughs> trademarked right <laughs> well um, one of the things I think that I wanted to bring up in before we run out of time, we're pretty close to that is the, um, you know, a lot of environmental groups um, had uh, supported um, Texas in their deregulation and uh, also, uh, you know, and building all these windmills in Texas, for instance, right. And, and elsewhere um, and had, kind of embrace that neoliberal model, which I think is a huge mistake. And I, uh, because uh, people in Texas are hopping mad, you know, and they're hopping mad where uh, they can't, um, you know, the, the, the total failure of the system, they don't have electricity, they don't have heat, they don't have water. Uh, and they're not going to be, you know, all that in, in, enthralled with, um, with the, uh, uh, you know, 
with climate change <laughs> at that point, um, they have more immediate needs. And to the extent that environmental organizations had backed this deregulation in order to uh, build all these windmills uh, is, is, is a losing strategy in my opinion. So, um, but uh, it sounds like we have, uh, well, let's see. Yes, this is uh, Jim, not on the Martian surface, but back in uh, Alabama where there was a, there was a power interruption and that wasn't, you know, I, I didn't, it wasn't created to um, enhance the topic we were talking about. So, uh, <laughs> Mark, <laughs> Mark generously well, allowed me to reestablish the Zoom link once I got power going again. Yeah, well, welcome back, Jim. Just in time to say goodbye. <laughs> uh, it's isn't that always the way? That, that is yeah, always and, um, the way. <laughs> so, well, so, thanks, Jim. I, I appreciate this is this has been a good show and. Uh, I'm glad we got you back that you weren't uh, somehow didn't fall off the, the, the edge of the earth. <laughs> well, I'm in Mo Brooks district, so anything's possible. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, we'll pray for you. <laughs> yes. And let's all pray for KFGM and the studio doors opening and the dawn of a new era of public broadcasting. Well, that sounds good to me. So, all right. Well, Thanks, Jim. And on a high note, thank you, Mark, and all of our loyal, faithful, patient listeners. Absolutely. <laughs> and that's the end of our show. Well, we want to thank you, Jim, um, our sound sound guy, for uh, a great show. And we thank you, the listeners, for listening in. And um, we hope that uh, you get something from this and take this knowledge and, and do something with it in, in, our, uh, in our communities. So you have been listening to KFGM, uh, 105.5 FM, Missoula Community Radio, and or streaming on 1055kfgm.org, or you are listening on our podcast, which is on anchor.fm and searchable through um, Spotify or Apple or any other uh, podcast app for Voice of the People, Radio by and for the 99%. And thank you and stay tuned for the next show.
left or right I'm just staying home tonight Getting lost in that hopeless little scream But I'm as stubborn as those garbage bags of time cannot decay I'm junk, but I'm still holding up this little wild bouquet Democracy is coming 